Okay, so what we were uh, beginning to talk about is the value in actually practicing something. Now there's ways of practicing. Some kids can learn to play baseball by just going and playing baseball with their friends. Other kids learn baseball by having daddy do slow pitches while they swing and swing and swing and swing, practicing baseball. The kids don't like much practicing baseball, but many of them really like playing baseball. And in that way, those who practice may not be getting may not be getting as good as the ones who were just playing baseball. But if you're going to get really, really good at baseball, then uh, practice time is useful. Okay, so this is, the, this is the point. You can, in fact, learn to gladden the mind by practicing gladdening the mind, walking around doing anything. You can learn satisfaction by practicing satisfaction, going <clears throat> thinking about, am I satisfied? Yes, I am. This is okay. Everything is all. And so we can go around actually practicing the features of Anapanasati without even calling it meditation. That in fact, the word meditation has gotten uh, first off, meditation was the wrong word to use, and there is no Pali word that I know of that refers to specifically meditation, the way that the word meditation came into the vocabulary, nor the way that it's used, that the word meditation came from something that the Catholics were doing. Well, we already know that whatever the Catholics were doing by the masses, whatever they were doing, it didn't get them with a gladdened mind. No, I didn't know that. Okay, that meditation is um, a word that's been, uh, let us say, bolted on to the teachings of the Buddha. And most Westerners don't even understand that um, it's something that was bolted on. And the whole idea of meditation retreats was a recent bolting on. That I would go so far as to say that before 1950, the likelihood of anyone finding any retreat the way that they're run today, anywhere in the world would be likely impossible. The retreats were invented in the 1950s in Burma as part of the government organization, that it was Ubar Khan who was the basically the the Burmese equivalent of uh, Secretary of Treasury for a new government that was forming. And that was where those retreats got started and Gawank got into one of those retreats and then started doing them in and, you know, things kind of grew from there. It grew with my and Goenka is the two primary startups of these 
meditation retreats. And they're all over the place, but they're really problematic. Okay, one of the problems is the students are not prepared 10 days when they start. So before day one, there's mistakes made because the students are not ready when they come. Number two, when the students finish the retreat, generally because of the Western method of the retreat, you go and you pay for and you get what you pay for, which means that when you finish the retreat, you've made your pain, so there's no follow-up after the retreat. So there's nothing before and there's nothing after. It's almost like that a retreat is nothing more than being sick, going to the doctor, paying the doctor, and going home sick. I've always felt weird about going to do the modern retreats. Uh, question how valuable it might actually be to do something like that. In the right place, in the right time, it is enormously valuable. And you could possibly say that at the right place in the right right time is how they got started, that the retreats got started for the right reason at the right place at the right time. But by the time they made it out of Burma into the way setting had changed, which meant the retreat was no longer as valuable as it once was. That in fact, the people who were doing the retreats in Burma were all Burmese. They were all already Buddhist. They were all already part of a group of people and so uh, when they left the retreat they were all still part of that group and the meditation teacher just happened to be in that office over there and so there was good kind of follow-up with that to where here you go sometimes a thousand miles to do a retreat and when the retreat is over you go home and not only only that, but during the retreat settings, because there's generally so many people sitting, they have very little access to the teacher. Maybe 10 to 15 minutes every day or so. It just doesn't, I understand the point is to like break away from what you traditionally do and do something, but like I, I was doing noting for two hours a day back when I was doing a course with uh, Damo, and that was how I kind of got like my first glimpse into insight into pain and that was like my entryway into um, I don't know no self and all that but I don't know if I would have had that in a traditional like retreat setting here like the 10 or 11 day course Well, the idea behind a 10-day uh, course is basically seclusion, to get away from it all. This is why the retreats are set up so that when the students go on the day of orientation, they uh, sort of put away and have it up in, a, in an office or somewhere, all the books, cell phones, laptops, uh, notebooks, 
note taking, writing equipment, uh, uh, DVD players, everything that the student brings with them. Uh, they put it so they can go into seclusion and start to deal with their own mind. The problem is, is that most people are not really, re really ready to do that. They think that they are, but they're not, they haven't practiced it. The way to practice before one goes to a 10 day retreat is to spend 10 days before the retreat completely in seclusion without any meditation instructions at all, but just literally get away from it all as all that would require 10 days of silence. Don't talk to anybody, don't watch TV, don't watch movies, don't watch cell phones, don't play games, no internet, no books, just you and whatever catches your attention. And mostly what's going to catch your attention is stuff that's still roaming in the brain, which is what happens with the students when they go into the uh, meditation retreat, except that they're not ready to deal with the that is already in the mind that they have been dealing with already with all of the objects. In other words, if I'm restless, I go read a book. If I'm restless with the book, then I'll go watch TV. And this is how we live our lives, kind of monkey mind to jumping from one object to the next without really being satisfied with where we are. That's why we jump to the place. And so having everything taken away from the student would have the benefit of allowing then the student to directly address what's really going on inside the mind because before, instead of addressing what was going on inside the mind, they go and occupy the mind with all of these peripheral things our mind moments looking at videos or watching TV or conversing with a friend or all kinds of different things so that we don't have to pay attention to the thoughts that we're having. So getting into seclusion allows the students to begin to see what kind of thoughts that they're having. And this is in fact the, what is called the noting method is to begin to note and begin to see the kind of thoughts that you're having. <clears throat> but that's almost like saying that all of schooling is just to learn A and, and B, and we'll give you C next year. And the rest of the alphabet, maybe never, but we'll give you a little bit. We'll give you an A and a B. And that's what's happening with the noting, is that the students don't get enough. And so in that regard, they don't, don't know what to do with all of this restlessness in the mind. And so they're trying to intentionally stop it or they're just intentionally let go. That brings on my analogy of imagine that you're standing in, in the road in, in the highway and a big truck is barreling down on you, honking its horn, and letting you know, okay, and wake up to that truck coming, and we can just stand there and watch it run over us. 
this is what we would call then choiceless awareness, that I'm choicelessly aware that I've got a freight train in my mind me down. Choiceless. The other is the noting method, which would be also, uh, I would call it Popeye, which means to stand in the waist, to stand in the road with your fist out, maybe with the delusion that's finished that we just today's work is strong, and we try to stop that truck. Guess what? <clears throat> Popeye's going to get run over just like when he would practice uh, choiceless awareness. There is a third option, and the third option is actually the third option of the team, which is not well taught in these meditation retreats. And that well taughtness is that you have to get out of the way. You seem to be distracted. My internet's cutting out, and I'm trying to put my cell phone in a better location so you stop breaking up. Can I call you back in one second? Okay. I'm sorry. I'll be right back. Hello again. I'm sorry about that. All right. So you were saying the third choice in that Waiting scenario? For Skype to do something. Yes, I don't see your image come up yet on the new wall. So let's continue on. Sure. Uh -oh. Are you here? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, your screen is frozen. It has, in fact, it's frozen from the last time that you called. <laughs> what? Can you see me? Yeah, I can see you, and the connection seems to be better now. All right. Well, basically what we were getting started on then is the issue of the as trying to uh, either just let noting and let it go or 
noting it and trying to say there is another way, and that is, is that we have to take in the right effort. That in fact, uh, uh, the mind is too much effort and choiceless awareness is not enough effort. That there's got to be just the right amount of effort and the least. Uh, so I would give you the definition of one's right noble effort is to do the least amount that gets the job done. The least amount of work, by the way, your your screen is unfrozen now, so oh, now you're perfect. back again. So the least amount of effort to get the job done. This is now the question is, what is the work that needs to be done? One is more inferred or implied, and the other one is quite harped on by the Buddha. When I say harped on, I mean by that that there is a number of suttas, dozens and dozens of suttas where the hindrances are mentioned with the intention of, but there are other suttas like sutta number 19 in the Majjhima Nikaya, and that sutta's name is two kinds of thought. Where the Buddha is biting thoughts from uh, unwholesome thoughts, which are the ordinary kind of thinking that we have, and wholesome thoughts. One way that you can make that division that works fairly well for Western mind is the, the distinction between critical thinking and nurturing thinking. Critical thinking actually built our civilization. Nurturing thinking is what a mommy does with her baby. She nurtures it. She takes care of it. By the time the child is four, five years old, she changes from nurturing her child into being critical of the child. Learn your ABCs. Do your one through threes. Do your homework. Put your cell phone down. Do what I tell you to do. Wash the dishes. You know that kind of language. This is how we built our civilization, but the humans have wound up being not fit for their own civilization. Another way of talking about civilization is, is that humans have built civilization out of the jungle because the jungle is terrifying. It's a frightening danger. And so we have built civilization, but then we didn't change the people that were brought out of the in the city, and so now the city becomes a concrete jungle because the jungle itself is in the minds of the humans, not in the concrete. Very interesting. Okay, why is it that if humans have built a safe civilization, that each one of us does not feel safe and secure? The answer is this critical thinking that we have is always looking at this is good and that's better. Or this is good, I like that, I want that, and this is no good and we got to get rid of that. we got to tear down the old one to build up the new. This is the way that we're getting in thoughts and we never come to the fact that everything is actually all right. To start back and nerve with these gladdening thoughts or this brightening of the mind, and changing our language. 
from the kind of thinking that we do, that the Mahasi says, note that stuff. The Buddha says, don't just note it. Grab it by the throat and throw it out of the mind. Happily, joyfully, throw it out. Aha, I caught you. Out you go. I do not have to think about that fight that I had with Aunt Susie. I do not have to think about that right now. I can be happy and joyful instead. So this is the way that we begin to practice. But most people, while they're going about their daily uh, duties and behaviors, fail to think about that. And so what they think about then is the way that the mind has always been thinking, which is in critical. So it's really a good idea to get off into seclusion with the very intention of becoming secluded most from that used to gather my attention and also seclude from all unwholesome thinking. And just let things be okay right now, the way that they are. So we can just take a deep breath and delight in that deep breath. Uh, another way of talking about it is to come out of our chattering mind, not just into silence, but rather into sensory input. That in fact, I'll give you three ways of thinking. When we use the word thinking, I'm using it in the sense of how can we spend a thought or how can we spend a mind moment? The cycle, okay. <clears throat> that, that in fact, uh, the mind is, is kind of on a cycle, many cycles they call one of the cycles that, that the mind has is an alpha wave. And that um, alpha waves, let us say when the mind is sharp and focused, alpha uh, is at about 10 hertz. Well, guess what? 10 hertz is a tenth of a second, <clears throat> which means that a mind moment or one alpha wave would be a thought moment. In that thought moment, in that tenth to the second, you can have a, a kind of thought that is um, a talking thought, a verbal thought. But you can also spend observing with the senses. For instance, if you spend a tenth of a second looking at a tree, you're not saying the word tree in your mind yet. The word tree comes a little bit later. But the actual seeing of the tree was done in a thought moment. And our thought moments last about a tenth of a second. So that means that we can either spend our time thinking in the sense of verbal thoughts, or we can spend some of our time in observational thoughts in the sense of our sensory input. We can actually hear things or see things. Or when we smell something, while you're actually smelling something, that is not a verbal thought. It's, an, it's a thought that's odor, an odor thought. An actual observation of the smell, like waking up and smelling the coffee. That time that we're smelling the coffee is not a time the mind is chatterboxing. It's smelling instead, okay? And so what we're looking at then is beginning to spend more and more thought moments or time moments 
or mind moments in sensory rather than in verbal thoughts. This is why we go for things like watching the breathing, because when we're actually observing the breathing and watching the breathing and controlling the breathing, that takes thought moments. But it doesn't take all the thought moments. A, a, a long, deep in-breath followed by a long, deep out does not happen in a tenth of a second. And in fact, it's much more likely to be five or ten seconds. Even a ten-second breath is a good breath, which means that in, in, the, in the time of one breath cycle, you have time for a hundred thought moments. What do we want to do with all those thought moments within that 10 seconds of breath? We'll think about a hundred different things. You can think of generally a hundred different things and guess what? A lot of people do. And sometimes those same people, instead of thinking of a hundred different things, they will think of, uh, Something like, you ought to go meditate. And then the next thought is not really a verbal thought. It's more of a feeling thought because there is actually feeling moments. And those feelings is the feeling, but it's not expressed in the words of I don't want to. It's expressed in exasperation or an exasperating sigh or poor me. Any of that kind of stuff is also a thought moment. And so the human gets into a dialogue between you ought to go meditate and oh, I don't want to go meditate right now. You ought to go meditate. And again, I don't. And the easy thing to do is that thought moment you ought to go meditate. Ah, oh, yeah. yeah, it's good. But always the child is in the habit of resisting those instructions. The parent ego state learned that as a child. And uh, basically we're talking about the child goes along to get along because the child fit, tries to fit into society. We call this the nesting instinct or the herding instinct. And so we as children go along to along. We, we're doing what we're told to do, but we resent it. And we resent it out of a powerless position. And so we take on a victim's role. And so when the parent inside the mind says you want to be meditating, the, the individual, unless he's mindful, will fall into the state of victim, resenting the orders that he's been given and resist them. And this happens in a mind moment. But if you're aware, you can say, yeah, automatically. Oh, and just take a deep breath and put the mind in a very good state. There's been times in the last couple so of weeks. There's natural resistance to this. Go ahead. What? There's been times in the last couple of weeks now that I've been actively trying to use right effort where I can, I catch my mind going into old thought patterns almost the moment it happens. It feels like a switch in my mind even, like old ways of reacting to different stimulus, like frustration and anger. And it's weird. It's, it's like 
is the soon as it starts. No, I'm thinking this way now. It's it's the choosing uh, choosing the the right thought instead of letting it devolve and choose itself. Isn't that interesting? That the way that I'm speaking about it, a lot of people say, oh, "I don't know what you're talking about." And others will say, "You know, I've just seen that." And that's what you're doing. You're actually pointing out that you can actually see, begin to see because you've been doing some noting. The question is now, are you going to just stop with the noting or are you going to start making a change? That's what the whole teaching of the Buddha is about, is making a change in the mind to stop the, the patterns of the mind that we're currently in and intentionally make those thoughts wholesome. It's actually building new neural circuits in your mind. It's getting rid of absolutely building new neural circuits in the mind. Not only building new neural circuits, but because of the controlling of the breathing and the thoughts, we're actually changing the frequencies of the waves that happen in the mind. We can slow down and speed up the upper waves and and all of this kind of stuff by starting to breathe well that in fact uh, there's been some neurological research some students have pointed uh, that keep reaffirming what the Buddha taught was absolutely the intentional long slow deep breathing on just that because we're intentionally doing long long Go deep breathing, it actually does change the mind's chemistry. But that's just one experiment. If they have the dual experiment of changing the thoughts that we have from ordinary thoughts to wholesome thoughts, while at the same time we're intentionally slowing the breathing down, now it's like a one two punch. Maybe I should and also focus double on benefit. That. Yes, slowing the breathing down and having the wholesome thoughts is not our for your whole life. Our whole lives we have spent talking ourselves into feeling bad. That habit has to be overcome, and the only way to do it is by talking ourselves into feeling good. Take a deep breath, a deep, satisfying breath is one of the ways of talking ourselves into feeling good. But we also have to change the mind from the thoughts that we're having, the verbal thoughts, for them to start feeling good too. And so really wholesome thoughts, thoughts that are, are truly, truly wholesome would be an example that we would give so that the students know what we mean for sure, that this is a wholesome thought. Okay, everything's everything's fine. No problems, no worries, mate. These are wholesome thoughts. Everything's all right. Everything's fine. Nothing to do. No place to go. Every, everything will take care of itself. But me worry. These are all wholesome kinds of thoughts to have and sort of make a rhyme or pick up a poem or something like that and make one up. Uh, it's all wholesome. 
for yourself so that you can repeat that almost like a mantra, which is a whole lot better than thinking about arguments that we've had, thinking about going to town, thinking about going to the bank, thinking about doing our taxes, thinking about the work that we did today, thinking about the work we're going to have to do tomorrow. All of that kind of stuff is basically wholesome and will use the language of junk thoughts. That those are just junk thoughts, but they're not very wholesome. And not only are they not wholesome, but in a way they're hindering us from being in a really wholesome state. So just ordinary junk thoughts, especially the kind of thoughts that are not about right here, right now. For instance, thinking about going to town, well, I'm not in town. So town is a there. And it's not a now, it's not a here now. So what is here and what is now is real and town is not real. It's a conjecture of my own mind. A way of thinking about it now, or a way of talking about it is how big is your world? When we are little children, the world is the size of the room that we're in. When we're really little children, the size of the house, or maybe it goes to the yard. But once we go to school and start taking classes uh, and and learning, let us say, about globes and maps and histories and um, uh, names of countries and all of that, and then they go to physics and start talking about astronomy and astrology and all of that, the child gets the idea that the world is very, very, very vast. But in fact, the real world is the world of your senses. And anything that's outside of your senses is not a vast world. It's a vast concept in the mind. So when I use the word Andromeda galaxy, I'm not talking about a galaxy out there have no connection with a real galaxy out there is merely a concept. Okay. But when, when I'm thinking about the fight that I had with Aunt Susie and thinking about how I'm going to get her next, guess what? Aunt Susie is not at home now. She's, so me thinking about uh, the Andromeda galaxy is the same kind of mental conjectures or conceptualized the thinking about Aunt Susie is right now. If Aunt Susie is right here right now, I can deal with a real Aunt Susie. So what I'm doing is I'm dealing with conceptualized Aunt Susie in the mind. This is a hindrance to being in the here now. Even though it's just merely a junk thought. But then there are thoughts that are downright harmful. That is thoughts about hitting Aunt Susie. Thoughts about doing her in, thoughts about teaching her a lesson, you know. These are thoughts that are that are unwholesome because it gets us into bad feelings. And so there's definitely bad feeling kind of thoughts. If you start thinking about your income taxes, you'll probably go into bad thoughts about it. Either bad thoughts about how bad the government is about spending my money or thoughts about how can I cheat on this tax so I can keep some of my money and not let those thieves have it.
Those are all kinds of unwholesome thoughts For example, that are easily seen as unwholesome. Pardon? For example, how I'm bringing that in to my day-to-day -day is I drive a lot for work, and I used to be upset when people drive like jerks, right? But now I've been trying to change every one of those thoughts, those old patterns from mad that they cut me off to thankfully he got in this path in the right way and everybody's good and there's been no accidents. So as I drive for work, I've been trying to change every one of those thoughts to not have unwholesome thoughts like that, that jerk. No, it's more like there's been no accidents. This is a good thing. Is that uh -huh. kind of what you mean? Exactly. It's a good thing. He didn't he didn't actually do as much damage as I'm thinking that he would have done if I'd had my way of thinking about it. <laughs> it's made such and a big not difference. only that, but at that particular point, when someone cuts us off or things like that, recognize that there is fear that comes up. That fear was momentary. It didn't last long, but the results of the fear are there. It's almost like turning on a water spigot, full tilt, very fast, and then turning it right back on, right? Now that the, uh, uh, because you you initially saw the car swerving, and that turned the spigot up here on, and you saw that there was no result to that, and so things were safe. You turned the water spigot back off, right? Guess what? Now you've got that whole uh, few mind moments of water spigot on full blast, all that adrenaline in the system. Now you're worked up. So now is the time to start paying attention to how we feel as well as the thoughts. Made a big By difference. By telling ourselves in reality, everything, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so paying attention to how we feel and paying Paying attention to how we're breathing, paying attention to how we're thinking, and paying attention to what we're thinking, those are the four Satipatthana. Okay. The, Can you say that one more the, time? The, the four? Yes. Thinking about the relaxing, thinking about how we feel, or let us say observing the body, observing how we feel observing the state of mind that we're in and observing the thoughts, those clouds, those verbs, those words, the minds, what's happening each mind moment, knowing that our feelings cloud that. So those are the four Satipatthana, the body, the feelings, the mind itself, and the mind's objects. And okay. one of the things that we can see about the mind's objects is, is that they don't last very long. They arise and pass away and arise and pass away and arise and pass away. Literally more than once a second. Things are in turmoil. But you can, in fact, stay focused in the sense that you can have a thought arise and it passes away and another thought, but it's the same kind of like everything's okay. And then that passes away. And then another thought, everything's all right. And then passes away. And so we begin to see that everything is arising and passing away. But the best way to do that is not when there are hindrances in the mind, but Rather, the, when the mind is really focused, fit for work, 
relaxed and full of wholesome thoughts, one after another after another, that should really do the denoting. So that when we're doing the noting, we're only noting wholesome things. That when we're noting and we note unwholesome things, we straighten that out instantly within one or two moments. Well, I'm glad that's gone. There's another nine moments, and then we're good to go. So things can happen. And this is why we want to actually sit down with no distractions, no cars, no uh, job, just sitting in a chair with the television off and everything and just with nothing to do except just to sit there and watch the mind with the intention of changing it into wholesome thoughts, to catch unwholesome thoughts and change them into wholesome thoughts. Aha, I saw that one. Aha, I caught that. Okay. And this is this is a way that we begin to practice, and it doesn't have to be uh, as formal as most people think. In fact, the word meditation almost ha- uh, definitely has a formality around it. To where Anapanasati is completely empty and natural, but it needs to be done often. One of the reasons why people do meditation formally is to set it up so that it will be done often. But then the child inside will resist going and doing that reality. But the child need not resist having a happy moment. They've done it any moment you can think of it. This is the reason then is to develop sati. Sati, we want to develop sati as the first number one big skill. Why? Because it doesn't matter what other skills you have. If you don't remember to apply those other skills, they're of no value to you in this moment when you've forgotten them. But when you remember the skills, then that remembering of the skills is is the highest skill. The highest skill then is sati, to wake up. And basically what that means to wake up is is to put in gear the frontal cortex, to actually look and see at what is going on in the relationship between the mid-cortex or the temple temple lobes, or they also call it the mammalian brain, and the anterior cortex, what is called the brain, which uh, in psychological circles like uh, Burnt and transactional analysis and even Freud, we'll call this child ego state, is the one that we're born with, and that the language of the child, by the way, is emotion. The language of the child is feelings and emotion. The language of the parent is uh, critical and nurturing dialogue. And uh, the language of the frontal cortex, the language of, is observation, connecting the dots, seeing the connections, putting to observing. This is what the frontal cortex, and so we need to actually, sati is just to wake up that frontal cortex so the cortex can see the dialogue 
between the parent and the child. And so this is what Sati is, is to wake up that adult, to put it in gear and have it investigate what is being said. What are the thoughts? If the thoughts are unwholesome, uh, critical thoughts, then change those thoughts from unwholesome critical thoughts into nurturing thought. In other words, we're changing the parent, excuse me, the adult changes the dialogue between the parent and the child. I remember you talking about the so when the child is, is having mm -hmm, the three regions of the brain and they op and what we're looking for is to find a way of unifying that whole crowd in there. And the way of unifying that crowd is by putting the uh, adult in charge rather than having our rights, rules, rituals, ways to do things in society is normally the boss. And then the only, and then the other boss is the feelings. I want this. I want that. The child. So sometimes the parent is the boss, and sometimes the child is the boss, and the adult is rarely the boss. When the boss is in charge, or when the uh, when the uh, adult part of the or the frontal cortex is in charge, that means we have some wisdom that we can uh, get the child satisfied without it having to chase its desires. Everything's okay right now. Everything is fine. So we nurture, we remember to nurture the mind and nurture the mind, which means nurturing the child and the child begins to feel nurtured. That we can literally talk ourselves into feeling good. Just talk ourselves into feeling bad. It means that the parent is being critical and the child is resisting that criticism. And most of us live our lives that way. Yes, no, up, down, back, forth. I want to, I don't want to do it. Yes, I've got to do it. You've got to do it. No, I don't want to do it. Well, I'll do it anyway. i got to do it. And so the child goes living its life reluctantly. And so when we have employment, we use words like work and job because we don't want to do it. We only do it because we've told ourselves you got to do it. In other words, the parent has talked the child into doing something, and so we go ahead and do it, but we so we call it work. It's a job to do. It's something that's not pleasant. what we need to do then is to get away from the job, get away from the work and get away from I've got to do it and all of that kind of stuff. Get into and practice getting out of that critical thinking into nurturing thinking. So now the child is in a really good state, which means the child is not afraid. It's fearless. Or a better word in our society would be uh, secure, safety. You know, security is a really, really big issue, right? We, do, we feel insecure with our networks. And so we want to have the feeling of security. This is a feeling that we can talk ourselves into. I mean, look at around the room. I see a pillow and I see a bed. I don't see any alligators. I don't see any crocodiles. I don't see any uh, uh, wolf man. 
there is, uh, I don't hear the uh, uh, the SWAT team busting down the door. So in fact, your environment is safe and secure. Why is it that when we're te- telling ourselves work to do that we feel insecure? We make ourselves feel insecure with our thoughts. So we can actually to having secure thoughts like there's no alligators here today. Isn't that marvelous? Now I can feel safe. The child needs that. In fact, I use the the term alligators or dinosaurs or things like that because that appeals to the child in us. That yeah, there are, are no alligators here. There's no dinosaurs. Everything is okay. Everything is fine. And so we need to practice this nurturing to come out of the unwholesome critical thinking into the nurturing thoughts. And and we can tell, give ourselves thoughts of safety and security. Another thing that happens within meditation is a lot of people have the idea that the longer I sit, the better it is. And I should sit, in fact, when it hurts. Even Goenka has a thing called a strong determination sitting where people are supposed to sit for an hour without moving their, opening their arms or legs or their eyes. You can straighten your back and that's about the only movement that's allowed. Okay, people have a lot of pain, physical pain, but the teaching is supposed to be that it's not pain, it's just sensation. Well, that's true, but we don't like it. And that's not the teaching of the Buddha at all. The Buddha taught comfort, that part of sukha is comfortable. And so the Buddha would say that if you're going to have a, make it a comfortable posture, and if that com- that posture that was comfortable becomes uncomfortable due to pressures or whatnot, then adjust your posture. So that, how can you be mentally with the child ego state completely comfortable, satisfied, and happy when the legs hurt? When the back hurts, right? That's the problem with the practice of the meditations that that is taught. That's why the retreats that are done at Wat Suan Mo, the longest sitting time is 30 minutes. Because we don't want the students. And even there, the students are given permission that if the legs hurt or if there's some body pain, that you can adjust your posture even to the point of standing up. Or if you're going to go do walking meditation, people were going to the back of the hall and that was a bit distracting. And so they made a compromise, go outside. If you you want to use your 30 minute sitting practice walking instead, that's okay. The important thing is to keep the body comfortable. Because when the body is uncomfortable, how can you have mental comfort? That in fact, in Anapanasati, the, the sutta itself is very explicitly clear that step four is relaxing the body. How can the body be relaxed when the legs are in pain? That in fact, the body relaxation is in the suttas of first jhana. If the body is not relaxed, this is not first jhana. Whatever you're calling this, 
or whatever you want first jhana to be, if the body is not relaxed, it's not jhana. And so now that's the next point with safety, security, and comfortable. Relaxed and comfortable. The next item on the list is satisfaction. That's the okay. These four items then um, complete the, the definition of the word sukha. The word sukha is actually in the Pali language opposite of the word dukkha. And sukha is a skill to be developed while mindfully or with uh, sati remembering to take a long deep breath and then remembering to take a long deep out breath one is to train oneself in sukha oh, this for... is actually i'm just i'm, I'm actually quoting the anapanasati sutra there sukha is not just to do uh, uh, the opposite in pali but also the word duke have come into usage in the Thai language and, and duke are definite opposites. And suke is such a common word in Pali language, uh, excuse me, in the Thai language that uh, is used in, for instance, beer commercials. Quam Quam is a word that is like in English that has the word like nest on it, so happiness or comfortableness or freedom from sufferingness. Quamsuk, dikundum dai means that you can kruendum is actually the beer. So cloth store beer, quamsuk dikundum dai means you can gain happiness by drinking our beer. That's the quam soup. Okay, so also in the uh, Gujarati language, dukkha and sukha are opposites. No, excuse me, in the Gujarati language it's dukhi and sukhi. But this is an important point that when you are in a state of sukhi or in a state of sukha, you are not in a state of dukkha. If you are safe, Secure, comfortable, and satisfied. How is that suffering? Hmm? How is that suffering? It's not. It's the exact opposite of suffering. Suffering or dukkha is being unsafe, unsure. It's being um, uncomfortable. It's being dis. Satisfaction. That's what is dukkha. So when we get ourselves into a state of satisfaction, that is the practice to get ourselves satisfied. And we practice that and practice that intentionally practice being satisfied and then getting a load out of it. Wow, this is really nice. And it begins to build. And as we gain confidence, we can build this and we can get ourselves into this state of sukha over and over and over again. Then 
confidence builds. And when confidence is building, that brings on the fourth item, the Sama Sankapa of the Eightfold Noble Path, right at or what is the state of mind that you're in. We change actually the state of mind into the state of uh, a winner, the state of which we drop away our feelings of being a victim and become a feeling of can do. I can do this. What can we do? No matter how obstructed the mind is with hindrances, I can throw that stuff out and come back to this present moment and see the way things are and get a big kick out of it. The Buddha didn't actually add the word get a big kick out of it. I added that. (laughs) I guess getting a big kick out of it is optional. But the point is, is that we know that this is actually uh, listed in and called the first knowledge. The first knowledge on the path. Which makes super mundane, noble, a factor of the path, and not held by ordinary people. That in fact is not yet uh, held by you because ordinary people have the attitude of, I can run into things, it's too much for me. Oh no, I can't handle it all. Oh no, I can't fix my truck. Oh no, I can't fix my broken heart. Oh no, I can't fix my critical mind. These are all um losers attitudes but we can through success change that attitude into hot dog i can do this hot dog i can have fun everything is all right everything is fine and so by understanding that that confidence grows it grows and grows into the lion. The Buddha was known as a lion. The champion, the one who's got his stuff together. The mind is unified, it's organized. And the wisdom is in charge now, the wise part of the mind, not the rule based mind and not the um, uh, uh, the reactionary mind, but the wisdom mind, the frontal cortex is in charge. And with it in charge comes great confidence that we can do this. So now we're practicing actually four aspects of the Eightfold Noble Path. One, sati, to wake up. Number two, to do that investigation, right view, to see things as they really are. Number three, to take the right effort, to take the deep breath and to throw unwholesome thoughts out of the mind and put wholesome thoughts in one wholesome thought after another, after another. And as we get skilled at that, we develop the attitude of I can do this. I can do it now. I can do it later. If I can do it with this thought, I can do it with the next thought. And pretty soon it doesn't matter what kind of thought that comes up. I can handle that thought, throw it out and come back to the present moment and be here now and deal with things wisely. A good example of that is, what kind of thoughts are you going to have? Let's say you're riding down the road, you're tooling down the road in your car, and you look in the rearview mirror and you see the red and the blue lights and you hear the siren going, woo! 
How do you feel? What are your thoughts? Right then. My first thoughts would probably be, oh no, oh gosh. Oh, oh no, right. Negative thoughts, right then, huh? Mm-hmm. So I should say that's probably- the time you need Shati. That's the point in time that you need Shati, is right after you see those lights and hear that siren. Okay, also the Shati to look, how do you feel right now? What's happened inside? I mean, most people, when I tell that little story, they get uptight right in here. Just that faucet. Just be talking about it. Just that faucet goes it's on intense. and then it goes right back off again. Mm-hmm. So if you practice on your own, how are you going to handle it when the cops come? Then when the cops actually do come, you will practice the new way of doing it, whether or you'll do the new way that you've been practicing rather than the old way of panic. Most people are very much afraid when cops stop them. And when the cops see that fear, the cop also picks up on that fear, becomes afraid and alert himself. He may even put his hand on his gun and he's looking for every little movement that you make. And if you make one little movement, you're a dead man, especially if you're the wrong cop, dead man. Why? Because of the fear. If we are, uh, when the cop approaches, oh, officer, I'm really glad to see you out on duty tonight. What can I do for you? You know, I really support the police. If you approach him that way when he when to roll the window down, completely cooperative and glad to see him, that event is going to be easy for you. Even if he gives you a ticket, and he probably won't. Depends upon your attitude. If you give the if you give a cop an attitude, he's going to give you a ticket or worse, maybe a bullet. So how are you? What kind of attitude are you going to have? The answer is I'm going to practice thinking about cops stopping me so that I'll be ready when they do. So do you what intentionally kind, what think disasters can you have? Pardon? So do you intentionally think hard thoughts to as practice then? Well, you have heard Murphy's Law, right? Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And it, it will go wrong at the worst possible moment. Yeah. Okay. So any sati that can go wrong will go wrong, and it will go wrong at the worst possible moment, like when the cop stops. So we need to practice that. We need to get it so that our sati will be there when the cop stops. There there are other options for that, like uh, thinking about doing your income tax, and then you say, I can handle that. No problem with those income tax. You give yourself a little pep talk about income tax so that when you go to do the income tax, now you're not buried in your own bad feelings about doing the income tax. You're on top of your world. Also, another one is you're going to die. How are you going to handle that? that are you going to die joyfully or are you going to die miserably joyfully up to you but it's a good idea to practice to be prepared for anything yeah so this is what we mean by that first knowledge the first knowledge on the path and to put it in perspective there are seven knowledges for the full fruit 
of soda pond. And this is the very first step. A lot of people on the internet talk about, oh, my teacher said I was a soda pond because I had this, that, or the other experience. Soda pond is not defined in the sutras by experience. It's defined by attitude. The attitude of a winner, the attitude of I can do this. But that attitude only comes with confidence. And that confidence has to be built up with one success after another, after another, after another. So after thinking about having cops come 10 or 15 times in my mind, and I can handle every one of them, then the real cop comes. How am I going to handle the real cop? The way that I practiced or the way that my really old habits are? So from time to time, we're going to get tested. Vikka Buddha Dasa says getting sick is a really good time to practice. When we're sick, we get shallow breathing. Good time to practice deep breathing. When we're sick, the body is sick. Normally, we have sick thoughts like, oh, poor me, I don't feel well. Other than, oh, the body is sick, but I'm not sick. I can handle this. No problem. I can lay in bed and let the body recover while I'm having a ball. So this is the way that we practice. Not about one hour sitting in a particular room or two hours or anything like that, but it's rather that we want to get in the habit of thinking about the Dhamma and practicing the Dhamma in the sense of thinking about the Dhamma means to think about having wholesome thoughts start watching our thoughts as much of the time as we can to develop that skill of sati. Now, it's actually the development of the sati, according to the suttas, the development of the sati is done with the breathing in the sense of every long, deep in-breath takes sati. Sati on the in-breath, every out-breath. That's a long, deep out-breath requires sati to be there for the in-breath to be there for the out-breath, to practice that. And a lot of people say, oh, I have to do it for every breath. No, that's Western thinking. That's critical thinking. Nurturing thinking is I can watch this one. I can watch this one. Making it very, very easy so that we always have success. And so we remove language like woulds and shoulds and all the times and try and failures and that kind of language. You just, those are like, that's language of the victim all the time. You mean I got to do it all the time? No, just do it when you think about doing it. Do it when you remember to do it. Do it because you like doing it. Because when you're doing it, now that's different than wanting things that we don't have. Wanting something that we don't have is dukkha, but wanting something and then getting immediate gratification, that's satisfaction, just the opposite of dukkha. So if we have very, very short uh, immediate goals, we'll have a lot of satisfaction. And if we have very tough long-term goals, then we'll have only very occasionally have any satisfaction which means we're not very good at developing the skill of satisfaction. I've got to actually win a gold medal at the Olympics before I feel good. I've got to actually climb Mount Everest before I feel good. I've got to actually go buy that new Mercedes before I feel good. 
I mean, this is the way that our society works. You got to go do something that's big and strong and tough and hard to do. And only then can you feel good. But guess what? The feeling good doesn't last. And not only that, but when the Olympic champion feels good, he feels good because of what happened inside of his own mind and what happened inside of his own mind. Yeehaw, I can do it. I did it. I did it. I did it. I can do it. I can do it. Right. That's the feeling that generate or that's the thought system that generates the feelings of the wow of the success we literally always talk ourselves into feeling good whenever we do but we don't often do that because we're the expectation is is that you can't feel good until you do something really big and all we're out in here is to do something really big like change your thought from an unwholesome thought to a wholesome thought Awesome. Makes it sense, like doesn't it? That's exactly where I'm at in my practice. And ever since I started talking to you, and it's only been like a month or two, but I feel like I've made more progress in these two months than the previous two months before that because of these missing pieces, the gladdening of the mind and the actively, you called it like clearing house in the mind. And I've actually yeah, cleaning house. felt difference from <laughs> that. And, you know, the, the insight into my pain and stuff from the noting and all that, that, that was valuable and it got me started. But without this, I don't know if all the pieces would have lined up quite the same way. Mm -hmm. Well, don't think of that time as wasted time. Think of that, that you were actually building up the skill of noting. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, because I, now I was never aware of And add right effort to it. And all that. it. It's so valuable being able to actually from the noting, like know if I'm angry, know if I'm depressed, or those like small nuanced emotions, being able to pick up on them and note them, that was a skill I think I developed in the first part of my practice. Mm -hmm. Right. So now the time is, is that uh, is to change the mind, to take the right effort to remove those thoughts and to put wholesome thoughts in. Yeah. Wholesome thoughts can be done with wholesome thoughts. I generally give something like zippity doo dah and zippity a, or Satchmo's song, What a Wonderful World. But now the wonderful world, he's not talking about Jupiter and Mars and uh, uh, Afghanistan and Putin and all of that. The wonderful world is the one that's right here in front of us. This world is marvelous. I like what you originally said, though. Everything's okay. It's the most simple. And that is so good. Well, in um, in Jesus Christ Superstar, there is a song, Mag Mary Magdalene's song, when she says, try not to get worried, try not to let it harm you, troubles has upset you all, everything's all right, everything's fine. So that everything is all right, everything is fine, was what Mary Magdalene told Jesus. Yeah, I've never seen that. Everything's all right. Everything's all right. Everything's fine. Google it. It's obviously it's going to be on Google. Everything is. <laughs> yeah. So would you think yeah. that I should start doing a more formal practice if I've been day to day doing a lot more sati 
mind moments? Short, short, short times. One example that I would give would be when you wake up in the morning, the first thing that you do, what do you do when you wake up in the morning? What's the very first thing you do? Check Within my phone. the first second. Huh? Check my phone. Okay, well, that's probably within within 10 seconds. What's what happens before you check your phone? Open my eyes. Well, one thing is, is that you recognize that you're awake. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's the first thing that we do. That's the very first thing we do, recognize that we're awake. When you, as soon as you wake up, you get out of the bed? Not, not right away. No, that's the point that is important to look at then, is, is that we wake up, but we don't get up. Sati is like that too. We can get a little bit of Sati, but not enough Sati to get us out of um, the harmful thoughts or the unwholesome thoughts. We can wake up to them, but not wake up to get enough out of them. But back to the bed. One thing that you can start to practice now is to remember that as soon as you wake up, the very first thing that you're going to do is to take a deep breath. To bring sati, as soon as you wake up in the morning, before you get out of bed, to spend about five minutes practicing anapanasati, taking a deep breath and clearing the mind like everything today is going to go just the way. Everything's going to be great today. Not going to have a problem or a worry. Everything's going to be all right. Everything's fine. And so intentionally in that morning time, spend it preparing for the day by getting the mind really clear. If any thoughts of any dreams come, just push those out. Say the dreams for the night right now. We're going to keep the mind really wholesome. That would be one time during the day that you could spend five to ten minutes actually practicing. Practicing then. What do we mean by practicing? Having wholesome thoughts on the in-breath, wholesome thoughts on the out-breath, thoughts of, oh, this feels so nice. Oh, just cuddling and smooth. Oh, it feels so good. I'll get up later, but right now I just feel so good. Everything is all right. I'll take care of it later just fine. No problems for later. Okay, so that's the way to practice in the morning. In the evening, when we go to bed at night, we want to practice exactly the same thing because people do not go to sleep instantly fall asleep the moment they hit the bed and crawl into the bed. What we normally do, what dreaming is, is dreaming is generally just the smoldering of the mind that was burning all day. And so the best thing for us to practice when we're getting in bed at night is to spend not just 10 minutes, but ever how long it takes to go into sleep with thoughts like, oh, there's no place to go and nothing to do. I'm not in a hurry. I got nothing to do for the next eight hours. I could just lay here and relax and enjoy the night. And those are the kind of thoughts that we want to have as we're going to sleep. Thoughts of everything's all right, everything is fine, no worries, no place to go. And I'll, anything that needs to be done, we'll get it done tomorrow and we'll get it done handsomely. 
But That's right a good now, idea. I'm just going to lay here to bed and just love it. All meditation and enlightenment and stuff aside, that's probably just a good idea to do. Just to put yourself in a good place. Yes. Mindset. Well, you're already enlightened. When you're doing that, enlightenment is not a permanent state. Nothing is permanent. People go in and out of enlightenment on a regular basis. Sometimes you're light, sometimes you're heavy, sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. So let's practice feeling the way you would feel when you're enlightened, because when you do, you are. See, I've always, I mean, I've heard and read that too, but from, I don't know, I always believe it, I know. Well, no, I do believe it, but... I question it sometimes, I guess, because is it a specific recognizing that those questionings, though, are are critical thinking. The nurturing thought is, of course, you can do it, do anything you want. Just be careful of what you want. If you want easy things, you'll always be successful. But see, you've already gotten that criticism built in so that critical thing will pop up from time to time. So now you've got the noting, you can say, aha, I can see that thought too. I can see that critical thought when it comes up. The critical thought of, oh, it's not that easy. It's going to be really hard. No, you're not really enlightened. Well, it depends upon how we define enlightenment. And one of the things that I can say that's really interesting is, is that Western Buddhism, as much as they put enlightenment at the top of their to-do list, they don't even have a good definition for what it is. Basically. Yeah. Don't even know what it is. So, whatever that is that we don't know what it is, no, you, you're not probably not going to do that. But the kind of enlightenment that does exist, you can have that. Isn't enlightenment anything that's still defined? You can't have it. (laughs) Pardon? So, isn't then enlightenment just the state of mind? Of course. Well, everything is, I guess. I mean, yeah, but everything is a state of mind. So is it Even more New being York aware is a state of, of mind. They've got a song about it. <laughs> yeah. Barbara Streisand sings about New York's state of mind. Everything's a state of mind. The question is, what is your state of mind? Is it a wholesome state of mind? Nurturing thoughts? Joy? Or is it critical thoughts, wanting something that you don't have, like enlightenment? Yeah. Or the jhanas, for example. I always hear people getting caught up in wanting them too badly. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, we have already talked today at length about how to get into first jhana. The the four Sukha? satipatthana? 
Right. Do you think, well, what we're talking about basically is the sukha and the removal of the hindrances and the breathing all work together to get the mind fit for work. In fact, the only word that I haven't used yet is the word pity, which is that attitude of the winner. That exhilaration, that wonderful feeling that we have is just merely a feeling. That kind of feeling is what people have sometimes in church or something, and then they'll walk away saying, I was in the presence of God. No, you were in the presence of a feeling you had, and you're calling it God. But it was just a feeling. Okay, others will say, well, I I was at one with everything. The answer to that is you felt at one with everything, which means it was a feeling that you had that had nothing to do with everything or one month. It had to do with the wonderful feeling, a marvelous feeling. And when we learn to control our feelings, you can feel any way you want to. If you learn to control them, how are you going to learn to control them? Well, you've been controlling them all along with negative thoughts, feeling bad, talking yourself into feeling bad. Now you can talk yourself into feeling good. I'm enlightened already. I'm enlightened. I'm enlightened. I feel good. That's all there is to it. <laughs> well, dang, I guess I'm, I guess I'm enlightened then. That, that's all it. Well, right now you are. Right now you are. Getting into right. that state's one thing, but get, but keep maintaining it, sustaining it. That's a new task. That's a new skill to learn. To that's get into to- that really marvelous state and then sustain it. Then, uh, so the two skills, one is the the skill of developing and getting into that state. And then the second skill is the skill of of being on guard to make sure that the thoughts are wholesome and wholesome and wholesome, one after another wholesome thoughts, so that you can maintain this marvelous state of joy and satisfaction and can-do attitude. That's first jhana. Those are the jhana factors. But in Western Buddhism, jhana is something magical and mystical and hard to get. It's so hard to read about it because of that. Well, they, I, they talk about it as been a, reading an it to you. <laughs> what was that? I said I'd just been reading it to you. Well, exactly. Well, hearing you say it is much better than the absolutes that are talked about in books or people's... Well, that has to do with the fact that translators would rather get every, every word right, word by word by word, get every word right, and they don't they care less about the meaning of the whole text because they're not even sure about the meaning of the whole text anyway. You got to start with, I mean, you got to start with the ABCs before you put words together. Once you get words together, you can form sentences. Later, you begin to form really marvelous poetry. Right now. Western translations of the suttas is that they sentence forming level. I never thought about it that way. That's a good way of seeing it. But it takes um, um, actually Thai language translations of the Pali much, much better than the English language translations because it had so many nobles. Who have taken a crack at it. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is actually himself 
done quite a lot of the translations. That's just not on the list of things to do at uh, BIA, is translating his college translations into English. But he did a lot of translations. And I've got some friends who speak Pali, uh, excuse me, speak Thai and read Thai so that I can check with about the translations in, in Thai. But yeah, uh, the English language translations are quite problematic. Written in a stilted translation kind of language that was started by Riles Davies and I.B. Horner. Uh, uh, what, in starting in the 1880s through the 1920s. And so that was where the original translations were done, and they were Christians. They weren't even Buddhist. They had no clue about what they were doing. All they had is just some strange foreign language. And so it's kind of good that they got started. I mean, the scholarship could get you so far. That makes a lot more sense because the way I used to think about the jhanas before I started uh, with teachers and stuff was like it was a specific state of mind, almost like a drug that you could get into through deep meditation where each each jhana was specifically a, a certain characteristics and this and that. I don't know. The, the more I think okay, about it, the think more of it like this. Think of it like this, that most of our lives lives are in turmoil. Coming to first jhana is very, very relaxing because we're not having wholesome thoughts to keep us agitated. We're relaxed with just wholesome thoughts. But we can become more relaxed than that by putting some gaps in the, in the wholesome thoughts. When we have gaps between the wholesome thoughts, then all of that pity and sukha feeling becomes much more manifest because now we're paying attention directly to the feelings and not paying attention to the thoughts. So as the thoughts subside into second jhana, the feelings of pity and sukha become really manifest, really, really wow. When you really pay attention to how good you feel, you really start to feel really good. But then what happens is, is that that marvelous feeling gets kind of old that it too has a kind of agitation to it. And so you let that subside to where there's nothing left now than the sukha. And that's the third jhana, is where the poly or the, uh, the pity no longer influences us or keeps us so bright that now we're very, very relaxed with just the sukha. But then we can relax even more than that from the sukha down to a level of equanimity or upeka, which is going to be the fourth jhana. That's when we even let the body, uh, which means that our perceptions get very, very weirded out. And we feel like we're flying in the air with a loss of gravity or we're 60 feet tall in the air and things like this. Another point is, is that these jhanas are just merely states of mind they're not, let us say, uh, business contracts that have a graduation ceremony or something. Like you cannot have that building occupied until the ribbon cut, right? No. Think of it like this is, is that once you have the first jhana fully developed, then the other jhanas just pop in and out. 
that in fact many meditators will find themselves with factors of the fourth jhana for a moment, and then they'll talk to themselves about it and pop back into ordinary mind. That in fact, the only way that one can learn to maintain the higher jhanas is by learning to maintain the first jhana. Having that mind on guard. And so first jhana has skills to be developed in it to where the second, third and fourth jhana are not thought of as skills or thought about just events that occur because the skills are developed in first jhana. That makes more sense. And that makes more sense why the Buddha originally thought that that was the way. By relaxing, mm -hmm. by basically sati. The Tijanas is just succession of relaxation, more relaxation, more relaxation to how relaxed can we get? Yeah, how we can get even more relaxed than that. We can get so relaxed that we don't even bother to perceive anything anymore, which means now there's no feelings left. What is left after that? Nothing but infinite consciousness. What do we mean by infinite consciousness? Actually, I got to harp on the word infinite for a while because nothing is infinite and that's a bad translation. What we're talking about here is, is that consciousness becomes connected because we're just observing. We're in sensory awareness as opposed to the normal mind sees something, thinks about it, makes sense out of it. That's what contacts him and that's what he has feelings about. So we rarely have feelings about reality. We have feelings about what we have perceived of reality. When we stop perceiving, we can just merely be conscious of sensory input and it's like a flood. This is also what they refer to as be uh, make me one with everything. That's when we're completely in sensual awareness and we're not adding anything to it through perceptions or feelings. That makes sense. Well, it not only makes sense, but you can do that yourself from time to time. I mean, just looking out the window and you stop thinking and you just look and you're in sensory awareness. But immediately you'll come back into thinking about it. With practicing first jhana of making sure that only thoughts are wholesome, then you can begin to put a stop to these thoughts because you've already got full control over them by making them wholesome one after another after another. So you can begin to, to uh, slow down this thinking process. The thinking process is actually part of perception making sense out of that which we see or see. Makes sense. So being in sensory awareness is ba it basically is what we're practicing with Anapanasati right from the beginning of taking that long deep breath means that we're putting ourselves into the sensory awareness. So what's the body doing? The sense touch contact breathing in body drops. Uh, the diaphragm opens, the chest uh, rib cage expands. You can feel it in the back and feel it in the shoulder, you can feel it all over the body. <laughs> makes, and makes when you're doing sense. that, you're in, in the here now. Why don't so in it that, that regard, the higher John is, pardon? I said, sorry, but. Why don't they just explain it that way? 
because they don't understand it because they didn't have the kind of teachers that I've had. I was it makes lucky. A, makes a lot more sense hearing you speak it out like that. There's not much to it. It's really actually quite easy. But the Western Buddhism is very sophisticated, very hard, very difficult, very philosophical. It's got lots and lots of lists with five of these and six of those and nine of this and 16 of those things called Anapanasatis and 36 of these kind of feelings and 108 of those things. <laughs> they just do it by the numbers. Right. And so when people see Buddhism in that regard, they see it as something very complicated. Like a system. To where the actual teaching of the Buddha is very small. Isn't, didn't he tell Ananda that? Uh, that it's um, simple but profound? Or it, it, it's. Um, he said something like that, right? Yes. That's in Sutta number 15 in the Dinganakaya. I forget the Pali name of the Sutta. But yes, that's where um, uh, Ananda, Ananda was. Well, he was. He, let us put it this way he was talking about Paticca Samukhata. And uh, and mentioning that he, but the Buddha already knew that Vedananda was still attached to rebirth and reincarnation and uh, magical thinking and that kind of stuff. Then, in fact, when the Buddha died, Mahamagala Mahakasapa did not let him into the first conference because they knew, but they were not as uh, let us say uh, diplomatic. Because you see, Ananda and the Buddha were half-brothers and cousins. The two sisters married the daddy. One sister had the Buddha and died in childbirth, and he, and he was then raised by the sister who had a child named Ananda. Ananda didn't come and stay with the Buddha until after 25, uh, after 20 years of the Buddha's, um, or actually 30 years after he left home, five on his uh, expedition or six, and then 20 years later. So Ananda was with the Buddha later in life, but Ananda really never got it. That's why the Buddha said what he said, that Paticca Samuppada is profound in the sense that if somebody really does understand the sequence of events of how the mind works, then that is a guarantee that because you understand how the mind works, you will come out of your magical thinking. That's what all of that is about. But yes, you're exactly right. But it was most specifically referring to Paticca Samuppada, which we have actually touched upon. You cannot, in fact, talk about first jhana without actually introducing a little bit of uh, Paticca Samuppada. That, in fact, is, is almost uh, wrong to tr to talk about the five aggregates without mentioning that these five aggregates are, uh, are all five of them then are then points in Paticca Samapada that in fact the five aggregates should be taught as an introduction to Paticca Samapada. When you see it that way then it's not so complicated. It's like okay well five out of twelve you got you know <laughs> Instead of five plus twelve, it's just uh, five and seven, because the five are part of the twelve. 
So things begin to overlap a lot. And a lot of the complexity is because the students don't see the overlap. And in fact, there's even more overlap because the five aggregates are nothing but the Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness, with a different emphasis. Because there, the mind is broken down into three groups in the five aggregates. So things are very simple. Go ahead, ask your question. Well, no, I was going to say, I've even noticed that during you, you explaining things that things are overlapping. And the overlap it hasn't been something I've seen before before talking to you. Because while you're talking, I'm like, oh, I'm connecting the dots in my mind to the different things. Mm -hmm. Simple but profound. Right. That's that's part of the job then is to is uh, is to help you to connect the dots that you've already got. To fill in the gaps, to fill in the holes. Excellent. All right, Justin. Will you go off and practice, especially practice early in the morning and late at night? Give yourself about 10 minutes then. And then there's other times you can sit down, like at lunch break, and just spend five or 10 minutes just saying, I'm going to spend about five or 10 minutes just enjoying the heck out of this five or 10 minutes. Enjoying the heck out of these five or 10 minutes. I like that. Okay. Great. Thank you so much for talking with me. Excellent. Well, we'll see you later. Yep. You have a wonderful day. You have a wonderful moment. <laughs> All these wonderful moments. Take care. <laughs> One after another. Okay. Bye-bye.